0: Open your Bibles with me, please, to 1 Peter chapter 3. Before I read the text, let me just give a little bit of context to this morning. Continuing our study through 1 Peter with the theme, overall theme of standing firm. Standing firm in our faith, standing firm in Christ. If you remember, Peter was writing to a people who had been dispersed, who were scattered throughout uh, Asia, and were predominantly Gentiles, although obviously there were some Jewish converts, but it were predominantly Gentiles. And he's encouraging them through this whole letter to continue in their faith and not to lose hope and not to lose heart and not to wander away, as so many New Testament writers did in their writing. He reminds them in the beginning of the book very quickly that they are a chosen race, Interesting language. They are a royal priesthood. He's obviously picking up on the theme of Old Testament Israel, saying to Gentile believers, you are the chosen race. You are now the royal priesthood. You are the holy nation. You are God's own possession. And then he gives them then the commission to make evident the excellencies of this great God who called them out of darkness, who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then Peter begins to speak to them very practically in one sense about what this looks like as they begin to make manifest the excellencies of God. In other words, what is their witness in this dark world to be like to make known the great God whom they serve? And so he begins to speak of this witness in chapter 2, and it goes into chapter 4. We are now in chapter 3. In chapter 2, he speaks of the Christian's witness in society, and Matt did such a good job speaking to that last week. The honoring of authority, the governing authorities needing to be honored, workplace authority needing to be honored and respected and submitted to. And then in chapter 3, later on in this chapter, toward the end, he begins to speak of the powerful witness of the Christian before the watching world. Finally and ultimately, the church's suffering. In chapter 3 and 4, the powerful witness of the suffering church before a watching world. All of this in the context of that admonition to make known the excellencies of God. But today what I want to look at is the beginning of chapter 3, and he addresses, interestingly, the witness of a husband and a wife in marriage. And I want to just be very frank with you. As I was praying, and even this morning I was praying, I went outside in our yard and I began to pray, and I felt such a battle. And I almost felt and I, I, I'm going to use the word almost in emphasizing it, I almost felt like I didn't have faith to preach this. Not because it isn't true and not because you wouldn't hear it, but because I know that the warfare against these things. And I want you to know that we are living, maybe one of the things that is the most um, strenuous, stringent resistance that we will face is in the context of what I'm going to speak to you about today. That the whole flow of the spirit of the age is against what I'm going to be talking about today. And in fact, I want to say to you, I was laughing to myself, I was thinking to myself, man, Peter had no idea how politically incorrect he was going to be when he wrote these words 2,000 years ago. And I want, to, I want you to know, and I know you do know this, that these words are becoming increasingly politically incorrect. Not just incorrect, but hated because of the truth of what they speak to. I want to do two things today very quickly, hopefully. I want to sp- first look at the text And look at the text and try to break it down as quickly as I can. But then I want to get to the, at the end, I want to talk to you about why this is so important. So I've entitled this morning's teaching, The Heart of the Matter. Because I truly believe that what Peter is addressing in these series of witnesses and admonitions about our witness and making known the excellencies of God is the heart of the matter of the letter. If what she is encouraging these dispersed, persecuted, suffering believers to stand firm in their faith in. And so in the middle of this, it's interesting. You go, why does he, seven verses, does he talk about a husband and a wife in marriage? It's almost like it doesn't fit. And you know, as we read these, here's the battle. Is that either you've heard this preached so many times, you've read them so many times, you already know what I'm going to say you think, or you've lost hope that it could ever be maybe any different than it is, or you don't have faith to ever think that the reality of this could be experienced in your life or in the church, and let me also just say this as a beginning too, all of us fail in this, I'm not preaching that this is now uh, you know, what we have attained to in any of us, perhaps. But it is the goal and it is the bar and it is the word and the will of God that this would become in our hearts what we aspire to in our marriages. So I want to look at this today. I want to trust the Holy Spirit will speak to us in the context of what I have just said. Father, in Jesus' name, as we look at your word today, Would you please, Lord, speak to us with new ears, with fresh ears to hear and fresh eyes to see, and a heart that is soft to be able to receive and believe. And we pray that each of us, Father, as men and as women, as young men and young women, as married and as single in this room, would see something beyond what we have known and understood before, and that you would enlarge us, Father, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's look at the text first. 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7. And he starts with the words in the ESV, likewise. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if, they, even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure Conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good, and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. In verse 1, he begins with the word likewise, and what is likewise referring to? It goes back to verse 14 of chapter 2, and the admonition in 2.14, to be subject to our masters. So the word there, the issue there is this word subject or submission, if you would. The Greek word, let me just help you by understanding what this means, and we're going to have to define these things, what they are, and then in a moment, what they are not. First of all, this word means to arrange in an orderly manner. It is a military term. To arrange in an orderly manner. To Peter and Paul, in Paul's writings, he refers to this word as well. It is a, listen, voluntary submission On your recognition, due to your recognition of God's order. A voluntary submission due to the fact that we understand and see God's order in creation. That's the word submission. But here's the catch. It doesn't come naturally to our fallen nature. Can anybody uh, say yes and amen to that? Now, a key text to understand what this word means is Genesis 3.16. And I won't have you turn to it. Let me just give you the beginning of that verse. It's simply this. After the fall, Genesis 3 is the fall, God comes and he speaks to both Adam, Eve, and Satan, to all three of them. But he says to the woman after the fall, he says to her, "I I will multiply your pain in childbirth and your desire shall be for your husband. Now, that's a text that has been often debated. It's controversial. What did God mean when he said to the woman, and your desire shall be for your husband? Some have thought it meant simply that from then on, you're going to really desire him, which isn't really true often. Or sometimes people have interpreted it that, that, um, the desire was sexual desire. What does he mean when he says that? The key to understanding that word is that in the Greek Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word that they use for desire, which is very interesting, is a Greek word that means to turn away or to abandon a former relationship or association. So it it almost is the opposite of how we've interpreted desire, but it's interesting how it's in Genesis 4, you can find the context for that word where it's used again, and God tells Cain there that sin's desire was to rule over him, but that he must master it. So there's a negative understanding of the word desire, if you're following me. Let me help you by simply saying this. The New English translation of the Bible translates Genesis 3:16 this way. To the woman, God said, I will greatly increase your labor pains. With pain, you will give birth to children. You will want to control your husband, but he will dominate you. You will want to control your husband after the fall, but he will dominate you. Let me say that both of those are the manifestation of sin. The woman's desire to control him and the man's desire to dominate her. And so that is part of the reason why we are living in this battle in our culture today. Because sin has so distorted the purpose of marriage. And so distorted the beauty of the relationship between a man and a woman. And there has been such a battle to regain, regain equality that we are living now in, in a world that is upside down and understanding what God's intention was. The majority of evangelical And conservative reform commentaries regarding Genesis 3.16 favor the interpretation I just gave you that Eve now within her fallen nature has the desire to rule over, to dominate, and to be independent of her husband. And the man has a desire now to control her because of her independent streak and to to dominate her and keep her under... The Hebrew word for rule over that God, uh, that God used in Genesis 3 um, emphasized power and control and domination and mastery. That was the word God used when he said that he will rule over you, which is obviously base human nature and not godly. So we're seeing now in this text, Peter's instruction of, of a powerful witness to a watching world regarding sin's dominion in fallen man and woman in marriage. So he says, wives, no. Be subject to your husbands. Because you see God's intention in creation for order. I want you to notice that in the 1 Peter 3 text, he says to them, be subject to your own husbands. So this submission is not to all men by a woman. It is to her husband alone. Now, there are other places in Scripture that we are taught to submit to, obviously, as Matt taught, to authority. You're taught to submit to local elders spiritually spiritually. So there is submission that men do to people and that women do to people. But this text is speaking of a woman's submission to her husband alone in a unique way. We're speaking of the uniqueness of the marriage relationship, obviously, in this text. So Peter is encouraging wives To entrust, I'm going to use that word, entrust themselves to their husbands to such a degree that even an unbelieving husband would be convinced of the truth of the gospel because of their wives' honor and submission and commitment. Even an unbelieving husband, Peter says, And he says, if you would look with me at verse two, when they see your respectful and pure conduct, that that would win them, he says, without a word. In other words, their behavior in and of itself would be enough to win them over. Why is that possibly true? Because it is so foreign. Because we're talking about things that are so uncommon. It is so foreign. It's so foreign for a woman who doesn't have a husband in in a Christian marriage, who is an unbelieving husband, to honor him to such a degree that he feels honored and that he feels loved and that he feels respected, even though maybe he knows deep down he doesn't deserve it in one sense. The word respect is the Greek word phobos where we get the word phobia. Fear. Interesting. But it isn't a fear in a negative sense, in an unhealthy way. It is a healthy fear, a deep respect, which other biblical texts teach us, come because of, again, an understanding of God's created order. It isn't a fear because the woman is not worthy, or she is less than, we're going to see that in a moment, or she's not of value or worth. We're going to obviously say, no, that is not true in any way, sense, or form. But only because of God's created purpose for man and woman. And this is a hard one for us to grasp 21st century, even evangelicalism in a Christian context. That there's a difference between the authority and the responsibility of a man and a woman that God has created. And it's why Paul teaches in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that a woman should not teach the whole church. Highly debated, highly controversial today. Highly rejected by great large segments of evangelical churches. Because it it seems so counter to the value of a woman's worth in our mind. But it has nothing to do with her gifting. There are many gifted women teachers or their spiritual authority. There are many women with great spiritual authority. It only has to do with one thing. That's the way God created. And there is order that he put into place that when it is violated leads to all sorts of potential problems. So we don't have to justify it, rationalize it in any way other than to say it's the order of God. That's what we're dealing with. And you have to ask the Lord why he did that. I don't know. Why did he create Adam first and then Eve from Adam? I don't know. Only he knows. Well, I do know. And we'll see that in a moment. And I'll get to that at the end. But that's the way that he created it. And that's the way that the the New Testament writers understood needs to be continued to be understood. And it is for the best in the sense of the well being of both the husband and the wife. The word pure, respectful and pure, by their respectful and pure behavior a behavior non-believing husband can be won. The word pure means very simply innocent, modest, chaste. Innocence, modesty, and chasteness in a woman. It's a powerful thing, Peter is saying. And there is something powerful being communicated here. That Peter is saying that a wife can win her unbelieving husband simply by her deep respect in their home and family and by her innocence and her purity and her modesty. I have so many things that I can say about all of these things. I have a lot of opinions. I'm going to try to keep from my opinions. But this is so countercultural. So counter, men want to flaunt their wives often. Women dress increasingly immodest in society. Young girls in immodesty is rampant. It's the spirit of the age stealing this innocence and this beauty of God's creation. Especially, listen, as it pertains to marriage. That's the subject today, brothers and sisters, marriage. But it's a hard attitude that Peter is describing, and he'll get into more detail. In verses 3 through 6, Peter says that it is a hidden adornment. Do not let your adorning be external, verse 3, the braiding of hair and on and on and on. But he says, verse 4, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart. So it's not an external beauty. Peter says that's really important, even to a husband. And I hope the single women in this room hear this. but it's the inner beauty that a man, a godly man, desires most. And it is what, more importantly than even what a man desires, it is what God places value upon. That's what's so beautiful about this. Let me read a fairly lengthy portion from a commentary by Kenneth Wiest, He's a Greek scholar. He was a Greek scholar who wrote commentaries. Please just listen as I read this. Why does does not dependence upon outward adornment help us to win souls to the Lord Jesus? That can apply to men as well. First, it is because the Holy Spirit does not use the styles of the world in winning a soul to the Lord as he seeks to work through the believer. Secondly, it is because such an elaborate display satisfies, this is interesting, satisfies the lust or desire of the eyes of the unsaved one whom we are seeking to win. Appealing to their base nature through those means. When a Christian worker appeals to the fallen nature of the sin, she cannot at the same time appeal to him to trust in the Lord Jesus. Jesus. Thirdly, it's because such a display destroys the personal testimony of the soul winner. We may be fundamental in our doctrine and yet defeat the power of the word we give out by the modernism of our appearance. Now, you got to know this guy wrote in the 1800s. The, unperson will save, the unsaved person will say, what you appear to be on the outside speaks so loudly, I cannot hear what you are saying. For these reasons, no dependence must be placed upon outward adornment as we seek to win the lost. Instead of this, we are dependent upon the hidden person of the heart. The expression refers to the inner heart of the Christian in which the Lord Jesus reigns supreme. When we depend upon him for our adornment, then the Lord Jesus is seen in the life. His beauty, his sweetness, his simplicity, This the Holy Spirit uses as he gently woos a soul to the Savior. The more, I love this, the more of the Lord Jesus, which the sinner sees in the believer's life, the more powerful is the latter's testimony. The more usable her words, usable to the Holy Spirit. Alas, as someone has said, what cheap perfume we sometimes use. This brings us to certain principles regarding adornment. If a personality is to be seen at its best, it must be seen alone, not merged with another personality. Either the Lord Jesus is seen in all his beauty or the personality of the believer is seen in her adornment. The Holy Spirit attracts sinners to the Lord Jesus, not by displaying the latest styles and dress, but by exhibiting the Lord Jesus. If the sinner is attracted by the modernism of the believer's adornment, the fundamentalism of the believer's doctrine will be neutralized. When a Christian woman depends upon the Lord Jesus for her adornment, the manner of wearing the hair, the kind and amount of ornament she wears, the kind of clothing she puts on, will all be in keeping with the purity, simplicity, and beauty of the Lord Jesus. All will be attractive without attracting from the Lord Jesus. All will be beautiful without detracting from him. All will have character without attracting one to the person herself. Then the sinner will see the Lord Jesus in the heart and life of the believer and in her adornment as well. And the Holy Spirit will be able to work through the local sinner, excuse me, through the soul winner, attracting sinners to the Savior. I love that thought of only one personality can be evident is it ours or his i think of that when i teach even is it me or him that's being communicated because we are vessels but our goal is to get out of the way and let him shine and no more is it, nowhere is it more evident and clear In this text, than in the way that a woman, and this is what we're speaking of now, a woman carries herself in her relationship primarily to her husband. But even in deeper context, in this way, it was to an unbelieving husband. It's interesting in verse 5, Peter tells us that women of old, holy women, he says, holy women adorn themselves with submission. You ever thought about that? How can you adorn yourself with submission? It's a beautiful picture that he paints, though. It's it's the hidden person of the heart, he says, and he calls it an imperishable beauty. Inward, listen, ladies, inward beauty doesn't age. In fact, it only gets more beautiful. It is imperishable. This beauty is manifest, he says, in a gentle and quiet spirit. We're not talking about personality. We're not talking about temperament. We're not talking about women being quiet, being mealy-mouthed, and being you know doormats. That's not what he's talking about. It's an attitude of heart. There are six things quickly that submission isn't, and you know these. It doesn't mean agreeing with your husband and everything he says. You better not. Kath and I had a very animated conversation this morning before we came to church. And that's the way I'm going to term it. It wasn't an argument, but it was an animated conversation where we disagreed on something. And she told me what she thought. And I just need to apologize to all of the guys here. God gave me the best woman that ever walked on the earth. So... I have the best one. You guys have got night good ones too, I know. So. But she speaks truth to me all of the time. It doesn't mean leaving your brain. It didn't mean leaving your brain at the altar when you got married. Submission is not trying, not, not, not trying the fact that you, you, you can go ahead and attempt to make your husband grow, encourage him to grow. You can try to change him in godly ways encouraging him towards godliness. It doesn't mean ever putting your your husband's will before the will of God, ever. Violating your conscience, never. And it doesn't mean that a woman's primary source of spiritual maturity or spiritual strength or even personal strength is through her husband. He's an important part but there are many other means contributing to your spiritual well-being and personal well-being. Peter said regarding women, these holy women, that they hoped in God. And he used Sarah, you know the story of Sarah. Genesis 12, Genesis 20, Abraham tells Sarah, Tell Pharaoh, in Genesis 12, tell Pharaoh that you're my sister. Because he was afraid of Pharaoh. And God did not like Pharaoh having any access to Sarah. And Pharaoh finds that out quickly. Genesis 12, Abimelech is told by, he tells Sarah, tell Abimelech that you're my sister. And God puts the fear of God in Abimelech one night, literally, to where Abimelech to where Abimelech says, "What are you trying to do? You're trying to get me killed." But it, it, the the point of this is that Sarah did what Abraham asked her to do. And I I obviously struggle with that at a level. But I, what Peter's point is, and God's point in the text, is simply that her hope was in God. She was trusting God. She was trusting God in that craziness. Because she knew God was dealing with her husband. She knew that God had spoken to Abraham. She knew what God had promised Abraham. And she knew that God needed to do something in Abraham. She hoped in God. A Christian woman does not put her hope in her husband or a single woman, her hope in getting a husband. She does not put her hope in her looks. She does not put her hope in in, in anything other than the promises of God. She's described in Proverbs 31, of strength and dignity are her clothing. And she laughs at the time to come. I love in verse 6, Peter says, "They they do not fear anything that is frightening. Can you say that today, ladies? Is your hope in God such that you do not fear anything that is frightening? Now, of course, we all have fear that it comes to us. We're talking about looking into the future, looking into what's surrounding us at this moment. Is your hope in God and your trust in God to the degree that you do not fear what everyone else says is frightening? She laughs at what the future might bring because she hopes in God. And so I concluded, this is, I love what I wrote this down. A Christian woman is adorned and marked by two things primarily, hope and fearlessness. Hope and fearlessness. Now, husbands, likewise, verse 7. Live with your wives in an understanding way. Boy. If we, we unpack the word understanding, what does that mean? How many different examples of what it means to be understanding could we come up with? I bet your wives could come up with a lot, huh? Be considerate, be kind, sensitive to her needs. Be chivalrous, open the door for her. Show concern for her. Protect her. Guard her. Obviously, provide for her. Cherish her. Nourish her spiritually through your affection and your love and your care. Listen to her. Be attentive to her. Be aware of her needs, her concerns, her unspoken needs, her unspoken concerns. I don't know. I think probably every day I ask, Kat, how are you doing, babe? How are you doing? And I don't just mean at that moment in a sense, but how are you? And sometimes she tells me and sometimes she doesn't, depending on how she feels. It means to be a man, to be strong, protective, aware. Jeremiah 51, Jeremiah compares Babylon's army to women because they were afraid without strength and passive and defenseless. Jeremiah says, Jeremiah says, Babylon's army is like, have it become like women. Because they become passive, defenseless, and without strength. Women are not all defenseless. That's not what I'm saying, or without strength or passive. But when a man loses his strength as being a man, he becomes more like what a woman is. And this is one of the major problems we're dealing with today in our society is that men have lost, not talking about testosterone-fueled machoism, we're talking about what it means to be a man, to be strong as a man, to be decisive, to to care, to be protective, to be aware, not to be passive, not to be lazy. to be nurturing. Compassionate, yes, but strong. That's what's in that word understanding, in a sense. But the strength that Peter is speaking of is not to be used to dominate her, but it's to be used to protect her, to nourish her, to cherish her, to provide for her. Peter says, just show her honor as the weaker vessel. That's a hated term hated phrase we've already talked about what weakness isn't but what is it the word that is a key here is the word vessel a vessel by its very nature is fragile all vessels are fragile they break but not what the most important thing about that word is not so much what it is but what it holds she's a vessel of god And you are to honor her as such, he says, and to care for her as such. Because she is a joint heir in salvation. Both men and women are vessels of God, it's true. But Peter says the woman is the weaker vessel. Weaker in what sense? She's created differently by God than men. And she's physically not as strong. That's why it's such an atrocity to have these men competing in women's sports, isn't it? As though they're women? Come on, give me a break. Because, you see, society has perverted our understanding of what it means to be a man and it means to be a woman. Have you ever wondered why that is such a, a battle today around cultural politics? Because it is, the, it is the arena in which the enemy is wanting to destroy this society. Brothers and sisters, it is. In 2015, Judge Anthony Kennedy, Kennedy Supreme Judge Anthony Kennedy from Sacramento, was the deciding vote in the decision to legalize same-sex marriage. 2015. Five to Four. And the reason he did that, he said, is because he believes the Constitution of the United States is a breathing document. It changes with society. Boy, where does that lead us? And you are to live with her in that understanding way, husband's. And this is the reason so that your prayers are not hindered. So that your prayers are not cut off. So that they don't bounce off the ceiling. You're praying for that job promotion, but you're not caring for your wife? God ain't hearing it. He's not hearing you. Take care of her. Care for her. Live with her in an understanding way. Honor her. Nurture her, protect her, cherish her, nourish her, listen to her, love her. And then I'll listen to you. This is the heart of the matter, and I want to close by talking about it for a couple of minutes. Why and how is this the heart of the matter? Because marriage is a prophetic whisper of an eternal marriage. Physical marriage on the earth between a man and a woman is a prophetic whisper of a greater marriage. In Hebrews 13.4, the writer to the Hebrews says this, Let marriage be held in honor among all. Marriage is of supreme importance, brothers and sisters, in society. Marriage is, of of all of the institutions that God has ordained, marriage is by far the most key for one reason. Because it is the most powerful means by which God can manifest, listen, the truth of the gospel. Marriage is the most powerful means by which God can make clear the truth and the mystery and the beauty of the gospel. If you love to hear the gospel preached from pulpits, you should love godly marriages because they preach the gospel as loudly. It's a prophetic whisper in one sense, but it is a blinding light in another in a dark age. We are living in a nihilistic society Increasingly nihilistic, which says there is no truth, no value to anything, and no purpose to anything. All values are baseless, nihilism says. There are no loyalties. There is no commitment. There is nothing beyond immediate pleasure and convenience. That's the pagan nihilism that this world is increasingly becoming. Why do you think it's so hard to live in it. I mean, the spirit of the age is blowing against us. And the despair and the breakdown of values in our nation speaks to this. I mean, it's, it's in, it's in, we, we're all shocked, you know, I think, just to think, man, it wasn't even like this five years ago. It wasn't even like this 10 years ago. I mean, everybody goes, oh, man, the 60s. You were so fortunate to grow, live in the 60s. The 60s were really hard years. How about the 50s? Those were the good years. And I was a young, young kid. I was born in 1950. But I can remember 56, 57, 58, 59. Those were really good years. The world we're living in now will never look like that again. I'm not saying that it should, but we are all shocked at how things have degraded so quickly. Are we not? Are you? Or is it just me? I don't know. The Bible, therefore, because of these truths, and I'm going to wrap it up, the Bible is the greatest enemy to this philosophy of human existence that permeates society. It is the greatest enemy. In this world of nihilism that we are living in, there are no tears. There is no sacrifice. There is no commitment. There is nothing beautiful to live for. In 1969, Ronald Reagan said he made the greatest mistake that he made when he allowed there to be no fault to divorce. In other words, you don't have to have an excuse to get divorced anymore. You can just get divorced. And he said, I wish I had never done that. Approve that. And so now all that we experience and all of the shipwrecked lives that we're going through, and I know there are people in the room that have been divorced. I'm not condemning you. That's what I said in the beginning. We're not perfect. We're sinners saved by grace. But it is what it is. Let's be honest. It's not the way that it should be. It's not the way God intended it. But the Bible tells us the truth about what is real. What is reality? And it begins with a beautiful story of a marriage, and it ends with an even more beautiful picture of the ultimate marriage. The whole of cosmic reality, all of reality is God's canvas, and it shows forth the powerful, this is the purpose of it, and beautiful story of a marriage. First between a man and a woman, and then the final and ultimate marriage between a perfect husband and his perfect bride. That's what this is about, guys. That's what this is about. It's the heart of the matter. Peter is saying, stand firm in your faith, stay strong in your faith, be a witness, you are our chosen nation, royal priesthood, God's own possession that you might declare his excellencies, and this is how you do it, women, wives, Love your husbands, submit to them. Husbands, live with them in an understanding way. Depict the beauty of marriage in a fallen world that will not understand it and that despises everything that we believe and that hates what we hold to. I truly believe God has created marriage to be the primary, uh, manif- primary instrument of him manifesting both the truth and the essence of the gospel. And the reason is is because there's a sacrificial love and a covenantal commitment and loyalty. Would the ladies in the room stand, young ladies included, please? Men, extend your hands toward them. Reach out toward them. Father, thank you for women, the women of God. Thank you for these women. We pray for them today, Lord. That they would be women who hope in God. Women who are adorned, Lord, with fearlessness and hope in God. We pray for those that are single. That, Lord, that they would long for more than what the world says they should long for. And we pray for them, Father, that they would have the courage to stand in a world that will not understand what they value. May they find the men, the man, that you, Father, have said, this is the one. And would you bring to them, Lord, in Jesus' name, a godly man. And we pray for those that are in marriages, Lord, that are not perhaps as healthy as they... Would want or could be, that they, O oh Lord, would be strengthened in grace as well. In Jesus' name. Lord, that they would be able to honor their husbands and submit to them, that they would be one even without a word, in accordance to the truth of your word. And we pray for the widows, and we thank you for them, and we thank you that you care for them, Lord, and we pray that you would continue to care for them, and to be for them, Lord, understanding that they need the one who could come alongside them and bless and encourage and strengthen them in Jesus' name. Bless these women, Lord, we pray, Lord. And now, men, you stand and women sit, and women, extend your hands toward these men. (laughs) young men as well we pray father in jesus name for men of god in this day strong men bold men courageous men wise men fearless men unashamed to be men and unashamed of the gospel we in jesus name ask you to break passivity off of them and lord that you would break off of them lord lethargy of heart and spirit and mind And that for the young men, that you would cause them, Lord, to see what's most important. And to give their hearts to that above all. We pray for them, Lord, that you would cause them and allow them to bring their their desires that you've put in them that are natural in submission to the Holy Spirit. That they would remain themselves pure. We pray for husbands that they would learn to live with their wives in an understanding way. Help us, O God. Help us to hear our wives. Help us to see them, Lord, with your eyes, to care for them and protect them and nurture them. And Lord, we ask that this church would be an instrument in your hands of godly marriages. Lord, in Jesus' name, even what I've preached and taught today, the enemy will try to steal from us, and in some, Lord, it would not even enter their hearts because it's so hard to believe it to be true. Break into our hearts, O God. Break into our hearts, O God, and establish the truth of these things. And give us hope and give us fresh faith, we pray. For your glory, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.